The specialties that have more burnt time doing inefficient processes are the ones that you'll need less of those people longer term. You will still need those people, but if you can augment them and take away the waste, that's actually the perfect spot. Hey, this is Justin Harvey, your host of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. My wife is an anesthesia resident, and I'm a financial planner, and I work with anesthesia and pain doctors as my clients. This podcast is designed to help the anesthesia community be informed about their careers, their finances, and more by taking important questions straight to the experts. Thanks for tuning in. In this week's episode, I interview Dr. Jack Neal. Jack has taken an unconventional path into medicine, doing undergraduate work in computer sciences. He has a unique perspective on the role of tech and artificial intelligence in the OR, and he himself is working on cutting-edge technologies that may revolutionize some of the most annoying parts of being a physician. So if you're wondering how AI may impact the world of anesthesia, and if you're in any danger of soon losing your job to a robot, you won't want to miss this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Anesthesia Success Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Harvey. I'm really excited to introduce to you our guest this week, Dr. Jack Neal. Jack is a pediatric anesthesiologist and an entrepreneur, and he has an extensive background in computer science and tech applications in medicine. He's on the ASA Committee for Electronic Media and Information Technology, and is an expert specifically in the area of applications of artificial intelligence in medicine. So, Jack, thanks a lot for being here today. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Justin. Starting off, why don't you just tell us a little bit about the current scope of your uh, interests as well as professional responsibilities, because I know they're quite diverse. Oh yeah, this could take up the entire hour, so <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll I'll limit it a very tight. Uh, yeah, I still I'm still a practicing clinician. I practice about five or six clinical days a month at the current time. That was as of this past January. I dropped down to that. We've got a startup that's funded doing artificial intelligence, doing cognitive automation and healthcare, specifically starting with medical coding in that space. Uh, but it's been a good amount of time on other intellectual property patenting on blockchain, virtual reality, different topics that are applicable to the combination of tech and healthcare places that we're just doing it wrong. It's nobody, it's nobody's fault. It's just the way that it's been. So trying to uh, come up with new ways to do old things. Um, it's been a big passion of mine and my first passion was computer science. And so now I'm um, thankfully and happily getting to do more of that because uh, medicine is a, uh, a second love at best. Huh. Technology is definitely my first love. Yeah, that's interesting. So I noticed looking at your CV that you've taken what I would call an atypical path to and through med school. So tell us a little bit about your background and your interest in tech and how that evolved into med school and how, what yeah. that means for today's. I have you know, scope no of idea how it started. I mean, I was just when I was 10, 11, 12, I was always trying to start companies just do, selling bubble gum at school and telling people not to chew it because the rule was they couldn't chew it and not have it. <laughs> Uh, started a pecan cracking company. I sold, or I, I gave away burnt CDs off a of Napster for donations uh, whenever yeah. I was, you know, 13 until my dad okay. wiped that out. But I was a computer guy all through and through without a, without a doubt. And then in 2003, so I, I graduated high school at 16 and then college at 19. And I was trying to get a job in computer field in 2003 at 19 years old. And I, I live in South Carolina. There were no computer jobs for in 2003 yeah. for a 19 year old. And I didn't have an entrepreneur. I didn't know. I didn't have the guts to try to start something on my own, I guess. And so instead, I took the AFOQT and applied to the Air Force. I took the, what is it, the G, GMAT? I don't know, whatever the thing is for uh, in the MBA school. And I applied to the Darla Moore School of Business at South Carolina. Got my interview. And he says, there's no way we're letting you in at 19. Our average person is hmm. 27. So after all those struck out, I had a year of scholarship, and I said, well, I'll do medicine. And so um, so I switched to chemistry, took chemistry 101 and 102 in the same semester because they wouldn't let me take organic till I had both. So I worked out a deal with them and got that done. Then I did pre-med. I did all my pre-med in one year except for the second semester of organic, and I wasn't going to take that unless I got into med school. And then I got into med school, and then I had to take that the summer before I started med school. But, yeah, all along the way, it didn't, you know, my heart never changed. My heart's always stayed hmm. You know, I, every, every game system I ever had, I tore it apart and hacked everything. Huh. I hope I don't get in trouble for saying that. I never stole anything. No, no, no. That's not what I mean. I just, <laughs> I just whittled with it. Um, but, uh, I mean, I just love TiVo, everything. I just take it all apart and figure out how it runs and make it work better than it did originally. So Yeah. Some of my earliest memories were, uh, order, ordering the Tiger Direct catalogs. I don't know if you got uh, those. I know what they are. Yeah. 
the wholesale computer parts and I was all about like building oh, yeah. my own CPU tower. And, yeah. And then Bitcoin yeah. came around. I very, that very much resonates with me. Yeah. So then Bitcoin came around and I got to like whittle yeah. a little bit, even though I was in residency at the time, I got to whittle a little bit back into my, you know, I made a couple egg crates full of my GPUs and heated okay. my, I heated my house in Michigan when I was up there doing fellowship uh, yeah. with the mining rigs. I didn't have to run the heater all, <laughs> so, all, it was an apartment, a two bedroom apartment. I didn't have to turn on the heater all winter, even when it was minus 19. Those two mining rigs heated the whole apartment. So hilarious. So why don't you just explain briefly for people who are listening, like what exactly that means? Oh, uh, easiest way. Oh, this is terrible. Uh, So it's like farming, but for make-believe treasure. But the treasure is algorithmically important and it's trackable aka and it's, bitcoin yeah it's, it's basically it's it's i wasn't exactly i wasn't mining that you couldn't mine that with gpus which are the graphics processing units in the computer they were already mined by asics those advanced circuits that were made just to mine bitcoin so you had to use gpus for things that were memory intensive because asics were computationally great but memory terrible so anyhow you had to mine other stuff okay so that's what i was doing then but uh yeah that's it's just a cryptocurrency and as of yesterday now facebook's in the game with a stable coin they're doing the libra i saw that so i saw uh, so yeah that's always been i've said the way to make the money in crypto was do a stable coin people put money into it you just live off the interest and you have almost no risk put the money in the (laughs) bank live off the interest as long as you got enough money to back it because that's a whole different topic that'll be all i do on blockchain today Cool. So let's talk for a minute about, you know, you transit, you went through med school at, so how old were you when you finished med school? Oh, well, I did a year of computer work before I started med school. Um, okay. I was a systems administrator and wrote a bunch of software for some companies during that year. But that was, I was probably 23. might've been 24 because okay. of that year okay. off. And then did you go straight into residency from there? Yeah, I, I tried not to. I tried. Uh, I wrote letters back in that time when I was in med school. I wrote a letter to uh, Apple and a letter to Google, and I begged them to get into the EMR game because at the time yeah. EMRs were starting and they were awful. And even at that time, yeah. Microsoft, I didn't trust. Like their Windows was getting worse, not better. <laughs> I think now they're. I love Microsoft, but um, but funny. at the time, the only two trustworthy that I thought knew how to make elegant or efficient systems were Google and Apple. I tried. Google said they were working with the free vendor ad supported i was like well that's gone and then apple didn't yeah. respond so okay. oh well I was trying to get them to do a healthcare oh, well. cloud in 2003 or no no what time was that 2000 billion dollar idea it's six well yeah i just didn't have the guts i didn't get guts until a little later in life so yeah. I, just, I just didn't yeah I, I whittled i programmed all kind of stuff and i just always made it work and then i'd move on to the next thing i never stuck i just didn't have the business mind to make it further than a fun awesome project until yeah well last it's, few years. it's clear that you've been ahead of the curve all since the beginning so you went through med school you tried to not go to residency but you ended up doing that i saw that you did a year in hawaii <laughs> which sounds not too bad and then you Wasn't did anesthesia bad. your anesthesia residency stateside mm-hmm. so how was that experience for you and and you know being a, i would guess on the younger side of your resident class was that an uh, i was close to average by then uh, okay. because of the year off. And then, and I had switched specialties. I started as, I was going to do general pediatrics uh, mm-hmm. originally. Um, and that was, my goal was to move back home and open a little clinic in my hometown. And at the time I was married and we were from the same hometown and that was going to work great. But then during that first year, we separated and I was like, well, I ain't moving back there. So um, that's when I switched specialties to anesthesia and then did the surgery. Okay. So I ended up like blowing another year there or you know, learning yeah. extra things I didn't need to learn. Anyhow. I mean, the residency sucks. Not, you know, it never is going to be any good. I mean, it's an awful experience for probably any, even the pediatric and it's all, it's just awful. But I mean, you, you could never do it again, right? It's one of those things that you say, I, I made it through once, but if you told me I had to go do that again, I'd quit. <laughs> I'd just, yeah. I'd do something different, but you can do it once. Everybody can do it once. So you make it through it. And, you know, once you're started, I mean, as long as you have the grit attitude and just the don't give up mm-hmm. attitude and, you know, I got a giant tattoo on my back that says failure is not an option. So uh, I, nice. I live it. Uh, just just set your goal. And if you set a bad goal, learn. But you got to get there. Yeah. And go ahead and yeah. finish out. But um, so, yeah, that's residency in a nutshell. So did you have any experiences during residency? It, it sounds like you kind of went in with a mindset of I'm you in particular cannot not see the world this way, where you're looking for opportunities for technological optimization and existing processes and things. So 
in that residency time frame, were you seeing things like, oh, I want to do this, I want to do that, I want to improve the EMR, I want to find other tech applications for surgery or anesthesia or, or what have you? Yeah, I did. I think I didn't quite because it's so overwhelming. And like, so honestly, when I when I got into med school, I didn't know anything about medicine. Nothing. I didn't know that there was. A, I didn't know that residency was a thing. Right. I that was blindsided me. Third year when I started my <laughs> third year and I got all these weird hours. I'm like, what the hell? Like what happened here? Like I thought the hardest part was getting in like, um, and so yeah, residency shocked me. I mean, it, it was complete shocker. I did, I did not know that was a thing. And so, uh, so I was just, I think I was, I never quite caught up mentally to think past that. I mean, I still wrote yeah. a bunch of software, like in med school, I wrote software to record the lectures and including the clicks so that it could put it onto a web feed. So people in India, I think we had that were watching and learning from us. So I wrote that software and then I wrote one to do a paging system throughout the hospital. So you could, there's an icon on the desktop that you could click and it would page a stat team to come to that OR mm -hmm. because we had no team that could, we had no way to notify people. You just stuck your head out the door and screamed. <laughs> so we made it where you could just double click an icon on the desktop and uh, call for help to them. So, I mean, I did little projects constantly all along, but never okay. with an idea of more than just fixing the bandaid, you know, it's IT departments yeah. and hospitals, you know, I, bless their hearts. I mean, if they had ideas of changing the world, they probably wouldn't be in the IT department of the hospital. So when you ask for stuff, <laughs> their mindset, a lot of time, and again, I, there's plenty of good people, I'm sure, but a large percentage, you know, five o'clock is what they're looking forward to. And if what you're asking is going to mess that up, then not likely to happen. So most of the time I just do it on my own. I, you know, I just, I'd find a way to get through it. So, so I did yeah. those things, but I never, I just didn't quite think further along than that. I didn't quite have that open eyed. I, I was blinded by the time constraints or just the time that was required. You just mentally fatigued mm -hmm. after res you know, during residency. So, yeah. So at what point then, so I know you've got Zather, you got Hank and you got the MedStream situation. Mm -hmm. um, all three of those I would call like different separate endeavors of yours. Why don't you maybe unpack what each of those are and maybe if there's i know there's some other stuff too just kind of describe in brief what each of those represents and then kind of when those came into the onto the scene for you yeah so medstream is the anesthesia company i work for and it's about um 150 docs about 300 crnas something like and i just change it but something around there we've got about 55 hospitals and then when i started there um you know there are a lot of smaller hospitals four to eight or hospitals and um they have a lot of trouble getting anesthesia medical record systems because they don't have good networks. Um, our group is like a contract group. So most, a lot of them don't want to spend a bunch of money installing systems for us because sort of our responsibility, at least in their mind and, and the rules put out by the government for meaningful use and stuff, it's always excluded anesthesia because there was, we lobbied strongly for it because there was a, those issues were constant. So we weren't pushed to do EMR. So mo a lot of anesthesia, records you know probably even at this point probably i'm guessing 30 to 40 percent are still on paper maybe higher than that really yeah so a large percent of the anesthesia part is still on paper so we wrote an aims system anesthesia information management system for our people that could sync with bad networks so if your network was bad it didn't matter it was a thick client so it would pull all the data down so even if you're we expected your network to be bad so we basically planned okay. for cyber attacks constantly right so all okay. the things that large institutions fear now, which is a cyber attack, which takes out their network and disrupts their care, we built it right. because that happened to us just by the nature of the network to the hospital. Right. <laughs> so so we made that, and um, so then over time, I kept doing stuff along the you know. So MedStream, it sounds like is a is like a, a private group of physicians and mm -hmm. CRNAs, right. and in addition to your clinical practice, there's a, a tech element where you've right. got this anesthesia. The, the AIM system that you mentioned. Right. And you are involved in, sounds like, both of those things. Well, so I helped to build it. I've sort of handed, you know, I was involved when we started that. So for the first year and a half of that, that company called Blue Nine. So I mm -hmm. helped develop that, inspect that, and build that up. And then um, after a while, I kind of just had other interests that pulled me away. And, um, you know, okay. the guy who's running that now is doing great. So I don't do much with that piece anymore. Okay. And still for MedStream, which is the, actual provider group that's what i'm cto yeah. of and so um i see so we do different projects with technology a lot of it's with communication from our standpoint but so zather came about because um 
you know, we haven't talked about AI yet, but for AI, for any of these artificial intelligence systems, anything that's using deep learning or neural networks or these fancy computational things, they need yeah. training. There's different ways, but in general, they need training data. They need a lots of samples, a lot of examples to learn. They don't learn like you or I do, where somebody tells you, you know, if you wanted to tell me how to, you know, know that, you know, if you, if you held up a cat and a dog and you were going to tell me why this is a dog, you might tell yeah. me because when it barks, it makes that noise. Like, you know, and, but if, if I was going to try to learn it without you teaching me and I just needed to see a bunch of examples, it, it would take a lot longer to figure out the difference between two things or to learn. So in medicine, it's like you're just the easy one to think about sepsis or not sepsis, right? Sepsis right. is when your bloodstream infection or when your heart rate's fast, your blood pressure's low and lots of stuff like that. So if you're going to teach somebody, you'll tell them what to look for. This the deep learning systems need lots and lots of examples. The problem is right. if they get lots and lots of examples in the wrong situation, they'll learn the wrong thing. So we were sitting in a lecture one time at our, in the conference, and um, I was sitting beside this guy, Chet, um, who's from London. And they were the guy was presenting uh, the system that was trained to, die, to look at a wolf or a husky. And it was getting it wrong about 30% of the time, right? And, and they were like, why is it getting it wrong? So they worked on this, this system. I think it's called Lime, but it does a back propagation. So it tried to figure out what in the picture the system looked at to figure out the difference. And what it found was that it was, getting the, it was saying it was a wolf when it was a husky too often. And when it looked back, it found it was because there was snow. It wasn't even looking at the dog or the animal. It, was looking, it thought it was snow. And so okay. what happened was their training samples – they had too many wolves in snow. A lot of their pictures right. that they trained it on had wolves in snow. So the system learned to guess wolf when it sees snow. And so it's not even looking at the actual animal. So I said, man, you, this brings up the point. You need How would you train a system to not be that way? You need giant, diverse, unbiased training sets. And so right. that's where Zather came from. It was a way to crowdsource large, unbiased training sets, pay people to do it, hand it off to entities that need it. If you need a ton of audio samples of a brake belt or the brake squeaking on a F-150, how are you going to get that if you're Ford? That's going to be really hard to go send your people out to get it in all kinds of different humidities and all kinds of different locations. Right. So instead, just offer it up. If you got an F-150, uh, submit an audio sample and we'll pay you two bucks, you know? Got it. So they can get it quickly wrapped. So that's what Zather came from. That's sort of being led by a group out of London. The, the chat and the other people in London are leading that. Okay. You know, my main thing is Hank AI, which is the um, what we called cognitive automation. It's a way to learn the way that you and I learn. Some of the IP is still pending on that. So I can't be too, too graphic on how it works. But okay. in general, it captures explanations and knowledge similar to how I would teach you something you can teach it. So we do typical machine learning, looking back at large data sets and creating predictions based on seeing a bunch of examples. But also, it gets reinforced and trained on top of that by humans telling us why when we're wrong. That's that's okay. the, the kind of big picture thing. But um, so that's going and that's sort of my main baby. That's actually named after my kid. So it really yeah. literally is my baby. <laughs> so that one's um, moving along. We're funded on it and we've got a good bit of traction and um, it's got lots of different applications. We're initially doing it to do medical coding. Any, you know, basically anything that takes digital inputs and creates a digital output. In general, yeah. it's sad that humans do those jobs. I mean, it's right. it, we're stuck doing them because they came about as we became sort of entrapped by computers. But it's a yeah. shame that we're doing those jobs. They're so saddening. Yeah. So maybe take a minute and describe sort of beginning to end how that process looks right now in sort of a sad scenario. And then describe how Hank... AI may engage to streamline it and, and how it would look and, and the impact it would have. So in general, that, that, you know, there's lots of different nuances to it. So I'll take a, almost an example approach that's sort of, I think, representative. But, you know, when, um, let's just do primary care because everybody goes to primary care and understands it. This isn't specifically anesthesia related. But so you go to your doctor, he or she sees you, they get some information, some vital signs, some different pieces of laboratory results or whatever they order. Then they, doc they dictate a note or they type it in the computer or use a template or dragon or somehow they get a note in the computer. Um, and then that whole set, basically the, the labs and vital signs and things, they get billed in a separate way than the provider services. The provider services can really only be billed based on the notes, right? The documentation that's in there. The problem is, you know, 80 to 90% of the information that we have in healthcare is in free text, right? So you got to right. yank it out of free text. 
And then once you do that, now you still got work to do. It's not just, you know, and that's not an easy process, number one. And it's still not done when you get the information pulled out. You still have to figure out how, what, what was your goal? <laughs> sure. You know, there's right. some nouns in there and you know, there's a few diagnoses, but what is that's by itself is not worth much. Humans take the free text. Typically, that's how it works. Now, that information goes to a billing company or somewhere else. And, and a human looks, reads through it figures out what codes there's the different for procedures there's cpt codes for anesthesia there's an asa version of the cpt code and then um for diagnoses in general we use the icd-10 coding system uh and so a human assigns these things and sends it in for payment and that's, okay. this is in the fee-for-service model there's a little bit of nuance when you get into value-based care and stuff but uh, that's too complicated and who knows where it'll go so i'm not going to bother but uh, and sure. even in that, you still need to keep track. You, you still have to do something similar, but you're not exactly paid based on it. But it, in the fee-for-service, right. you're paid based on those things you submit. Well, a couple of things, a couple of issues there. One, clearly, that sucks, right? That's a, that's like when you used to transcribe and somebody sat and listened to it the next day and put it back into a computer. You got to wait for that stuff to happen. It can't happen live um, if a computer doesn't. If you don't automate it, it can't happen live. So all the benefits of doing that stuff live, like if you're dictating live, you can fix stuff, right? We love it. Now doctors who do it, you can't imagine that I would have to come back tomorrow and reread that and I would, I can, I'll change it while I'm doing it. So now as right. you document your record, you would start seeing what's coming out of it live as you document. So then you seeing can, the, co the, seeing CPT the codes, codes, exactly. The CPT, yeah. seeing what you support, what does your documentation support as you do it? And if you can yeah. do that, now you take out that back and forth inefficiency that you were having. You also do it faster and you do it cheaper and you'll get different opinions on this. But my opinion is the objectivity of not having a human do it and at being at the mercy of someone who has read the last doc, the last updates, the ICD manual, whatever. Having that objective, not subjective, I think is a huge right. plus, right. even if it's slightly wrong, you know, even if, even if it's, even if it has to make a few guesses, um, this is in the, you know, the low stakes environment. There's no patient light. There, there's stakes, right? You get something that might go on a medical record forever because it predict, you know, it, it came up with the wrong code, but humans do it too, right? Humans put right. the wrong codes on it plenty. Uh, as long as we do it better, I think we're in a better place. So right. doing that live and then, you know, big picture, I think that this should also, because, you know, upcoding and fraud, and there's so many different ways to game the system, making right. that objective, you have to lie in your documentation to upcode. And if you're doing that, you're going to get busted. Um, right. But you can't just hedge everything up to a slightly more expensive code for every office visit just because, nah, I think this is an ASA, or for us an anesthesia, eh, I think that's an ASA 3. We'll make it a 3. No, let's make that objective. They, right. That, that's the benefit, I think. Objectivity, efficiency, speed, you know, that live interaction so you know what's coming out of this and with the price transparency that the government's pushing for and i think that everybody wants or some people want actually when they've done surveys not that many people are like 40 percent of people don't care but i'm surprised but i think that's a huge value that also you'll never get price transparency until you can do live coding you know when you do your pre-op and it can tell you what your pre-op you know if you can auth automate pre-authorizations prior authorizations yeah. that'd be huge right you don't have to go through the yeah. back and forth so tons and tons of things that will get yeah. better by automating that process. It's a complicated yeah. and difficult technical process. And there will be humans in that loop for a long, long, long time. It's just about speeding them up, helping. And in the places where you can double check things, like before you send your claims in at night to be able to double check that there's no egregious errors or that you overlooked something right. or that what we predicted the codes are, are nothing like what your human, maybe your human read the wrong record. Who knows? I mean, but like just those right. types of things, the assistance is huge too. It's probably way more than you asked for, but that there was perfect. You go. <laughs> so, so Hank then is going to be the the way that the free text gets read and interpreted into the relevant CPT codes that the physician who's entering the text can see in real time and evaluate. You know, if if those codes are appropriate. Correct. That's one of the many places that it would fit because, in, in in my mind long-term speaking, um, insurers should pay based on the documentation, not based on the codes you apply. It's an archaic system that we needed to filter the medical record into a few codes 
for the insurer to pay. Patients right. are far more complex. And as a provider, we all know, even though this is all this says I supported, I took, it was way more complicated than that. I should have been paid way right. more than this code supports, right? right. Um, so by, I think long-term, by automating the process, making it objective, we, you, you put a similar system on the insurer side. And now that we have interoperability, the insurer can pull the record. And for mm-hmm. initially, they can just audit that you're not upcoding. Longer term, that could be how we get paid. If moving the coding to their side is a far more efficient process than doing it for every single provider and every small clinic has to deal with this and everybody. No, and right. if instead it's just the insurers pull now, the doctors are going to say, well, I don't trust the insurers. And that's true. Right. That's why you need to run the same objective system before you send it in so that you know what the hell is going to happen. Right. Um, right. So in a perfect world, then the, the physician just enter essentially dictates the notes real time and then ships it off and the insurer real time interprets it he knows back what's gonna happen right okay that makes sense and you know with regards to transparency i'm a i've been beating the transparency drum in all different ways a lot in my industry with financial advising but also in medicine it's it's confusing to me (laughs) i uh, a couple years ago i had a benign cyst taken out of my wrist and as an experiment, I was like, I swear, I'm not going to get the surgery done until I know how much it costs. Yeah. And it was Good luck. like the person at the hospital and the doctor, and the P- I was like asking everybody and everybody was pointing somewhere else. And finally, I just, I literally just gave up <laughs> yeah. um, for something as simple as, you know, having a, a little thing taken out of my wrist. And I yeah. thought, oh my gosh, if you have a complex surgery or some kind of procedure that's like multi-stage, how on earth are you ever going to have any sense of what this is actually going to cost you? And 20 and years ago, no- well, 20 years ago, you'd have probably been it'd have been easier right now. One of our issues is with the consolidation, we get so separated from billing as a provider, right? Like anesthesia anesthesia or like even other surgeons probably are a little more close to the billing process. They probably Mm -hmm. know a little more about, but still a lot of them are hospital employed and they will know very little about what that, they know what their RVUs are. I mean, they know what they're getting at the end of the, you know, they they know those things, but they don't know what this costs because they're not involved with that process because we've gotten so many levels of administration of between us and that process. So bringing that all the way back together, I think would be a, it would help us choose better too. Um, if we care about cost, which some people do, some people don't, but in, you know, good people do. I think ultimately we must as a society, like if nobody knows or cares how much anything costs, it cannot continue to be affordable. Just, it just can't. Right. And that's, so I think it's everyone's best interest to do and we'll see, but I I agree now. I'll say that, you know, when we had, um, we've got a two-year-old and whenever we had him, that was my first and I've been pretty healthy. I haven't had many experiences with the hospital system, just primary care. And that's a very much simpler, much, you know what the copay, that's much. And actually we're yeah. a healthcare share. We're not even, we don't have health insurance. We use Christian healthcare sharing plans. So even though we're both, my wife's a pediatrician, but we still don't have health insurance. Um, but, um, <laughs> but when we had, when we had our son, it was mind numbing how like we just kept getting bills and I like, yeah. I paid them. Like I pay them and I get another bill. And finally I said, I'm not paying any more bills. Like I've already paid. <laughs> we were there for three days. Why am I getting bill after bill after bill? Why are them getting, yeah. why am I getting a bill? And then multiple were coming from the hospital, but it was different pieces of the hospital lab was sending me one. Right. And so finally I just quit paying it. And then I said, I'm not going to pay this. I had paid it three times. I said, I'm not paying this for a year. I'm going to wait on everything to get together and then I'll pay it all yeah. at once. I am not going to keep, yeah. I don't, I don't have that many stamps in my house. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so then, yes, yeah, so I waited and they sent me to collections and then I paid it from collections, but that was easier. <laughs> that was easier than the other way. Yeah. It is crappy. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, <laughs> that is one approach, which I don't necessarily personally recommend, but that's one way to do it. Um, so I'm, I'm interested, you know, with, with all the time you spent running around in the AI and advanced technological applications in medicine, to what extent have you seen it in your field of anesthesia or, uh, to what extent, you know, I, I know that every now and then we'll see an article like the one that you wrote in the ASA magazine last year, like is tech, is, uh, AI going to enhance you as a physician or replace you? And I know you, um, you referred to sedasis, the, the J and J, uh, sort of proto, automated anesthesiologist yeah. that uh, was used for some simple GI cases that eventually kind of was phased out. Maybe talk a little bit about that and a little bit about how do you see AI impacting your specialty in particular? Yeah, I'll start with saying the, um, 
when you're just looking at what I'll call augmentation or assistance, those two I would use interchangeably, even though the linguists around us will probably say they're not. So for augmentation, things that'll help us, that's definitely, in my mind, without a doubt, the things that are coming first, right? Even for the stuff, even for the Hank AI project, even the things we're doing, assistance is the first step, right? Um, but in the higher stakes environments where there's lives at risk, I mean, if, if you think about... Um, you know, 25, I'm just guessing how long, 20, 30 years ago, um, EKGs, they wrote some expert systems, look at the waveform, and it spits out a reading on the EKG, right? And it tells us pretty, and they're pretty good, right? I'm an anesthesiologist, I can read an EKG, but I still look, right? I, I don't look first because I don't want it to jade me, but I, do, I, I read the EKG and then I look. And if it says something I didn't see, well, it might be a better EKG reader than me. I, I don't know. I mean, so I can't ignore it. But with that, even though that's been around for 20 to 30 years, and it's really good, we still have to overread every single EKG, right? So that technically is an automated system, or could be, but regulation and compliance and, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, um, risk and risk, you know, we need a human to blame. <laughs> well, yeah, you always want a human to yeah. blame. We're still in a society that needs a human to blame no matter what goes wrong. A plane, a car, a anesthesia machine. You want, you want a human. We can't blame a machine right. or even the machine maker. So the human's always the lowest. You're going to get blamed when you're using the machine. So be careful if you're using machines that are automated, I would say, as a provider, because you will be blamed if it yeah. malfunctions. But um, the real problem there is if, if, if your goal, like Cetasys, which was trying to sort of replace, like they missed their value proposition, right? What is the value of the machine? Is it that you don't need a, is it a replacement so you don't need a provider there? Well, the problem is, you can't even get rid of the cardiologist reading an EKG. There is no way you're going to get rid of a provider who can give airway support, right? It's just not going to happen. And even if it could, right. the provider, the pa so what happened is you had to under-sedate the patients with those machines a lot of times. And then the, the GI guy was pissed off because the patient's wiggling around. And then, you know, <laughs> it, it, if they made them too sleepy, well, they get airway problems and that's a risk. So it just, that's a, it, they, missed, they missed their value prop. Um, so augmentation is really more, I think, where they should have focused. If they had focused on intraoperatively dialing in the dials based on BIS monitoring or other things, that's probably got some muster, right? Paying a little more yeah. attention, don't make them too deep or too light. I mean, half, if you're not paying attention, you know, and we all pay a lot of attention in the OR, but every now and then somebody probably doesn't pay as much attention as they should when things are smooth sailing and the patient wiggles. They're sound asleep, but they wiggle a little bit. It's just how anesthesia works. A system that auto dials it based on a BIS monitor or other, which a BIS is like a EEG monitor of brainwaves, things like that probably would prevent that. So augmentation would be helpful, but automation is sort of um, where I think we should stay away from. And the last piece on this will be the, the, the concept that I wrote in that article, which is when we think of like AI, right? You have to think hardware and software, just like humans are hardware and software. I mean, our software is our brain, our central nervous system that controls and tells everything what to do. That's software. The, the problem with, um, you know, we, we have arms and legs and mouths, but that's our hardware. And so if we, we, need, we need to think about the systems the same way. We need to still separate out machines and hardware and software. So if the task you're trying to automate involves a lot of hardware, we're not very close with hardware. Hardware does not advance right. on its own. It, it, right. We might be able to write software that can advance hardware on its own, but that's two layers deep, right? That's not what we're doing right now in, in any yeah. real manner. So if your job is a completely cognitive task without much hardware involvement, that's one that, I mean, just think, is this really a job a human should be doing in the first place? Um, or, yeah. you know, that's a complicated, very politically devised or uh, challenging topic to go into. But yeah. Um, still something we're thinking about. Yeah. And, and I know something that I've heard with radiology and interpreting scans, that's something that, um, is, you know, hypothetically a little closer or it would be more easily replaced because there's, there's not the procedural element when you're interpreting a scan. And so perhaps that might be a specialty that might be a little closer to, again, it, it doesn't seem imminent based on the things that In I see here, but. In theory and technically speaking, you're true. The problem there is not the technology. Just like the problem with the EKG is not the technology. The problem is acceptance and we want a, we want a person to blame. So right. I think it will speed things up. It will probably, you know, every day 
a lot of radiologists, you have to read all the x-rays coming in from the endotracheal tube depth and a lot of these just mundane things that you can automate. But the, yeah. I, I think they'll still need an overread for a long time because yeah. we need a thing. We need a human to blame. That's the main reason. Yeah. And I would also note that I was looking at the uh, physician compensation benchmarking from Becker's that came out the other day, and radiologists had the highest year-over-year compensation increase at about seven percent of all the uh, all the specialties. So clearly, they're not in danger of uh, going away at the dinosaur. And and one thing that could come out in their benefit is the fear of jobs going away may lead to a shortage of them of people going into those residencies, and they might be really right. well off. Uh, but, right. but in, in most of the, most systems, if you, you know, my challenge to people is always look at the job you're doing and see how much of this is waste. And of course we all know like a, most of what we do is waste. Uh, just we inefficient, just clicking buttons and things that are yeah. definitely not adding value to the system. Um, but right. if you automate it, if you improve those things with technology, not with just lean movements telling you to work harder with less, like the lean movements have pushed us about as far as the high deductible plans can push us on you know, health insurance costs. Like you can't push it any further. We're probably at the limit of how fast I can turn over a room and how many, whatever. So you need technology to help. If it did help though, and you had that 80% of your time back, would they need as many of you? Is the question really more than anything that I would say for whatever the specialty is, the specialties that have more burnt time doing inefficient processes are the ones that you'll need less of those people longer term. You will still need those people, but if you can augment them and take away the waste, I mean, that's a, that's actually the perfect spot. I mean, you know, my wife's pediatrician. I see her spend so much time just charting and things. And I said, if you didn't have to do any of that, if you truly just see patients, how many more patients do you think you could see in a day and still be happy, right? Still be satisfied with your, with your life, you know, and it's, it's probably 50% to hundred percent more patients. Almost see twice as many patients in a day. If you took away right. all the junk work around it and she'd still be right. satisfied. Those are the things that I think we have to, are the big things we need to do as a society when it comes to applying technology. That's where the money's at, I would say. Yeah. And this isn't unique to medicine in any way. And in fact, uh, no. medicine, I would, I would imagine it's probably one of the most, I'm totally guessing, but it, it's, it's difficult to replace a doctor. It's not like in five years, it's going to be a robot taking your pulse and a robot doing your surgery and a robot administering anesthesia. Like physicians, again, seem... <laughs> like there's no danger of that on the horizon. Yeah. I just, I think that just like technology, you know, this is a, con I'm not sure who listened to this podcast, it's probably controversial. I don't mean to um, step on anybody's toes. I love CRNAs, but I will say that the, one of the things that allows for less amount, less length of training to get to the same point is the technology that makes it safer. And if yeah. you keep making it safer, you'll need less and less training. So, you know, with, even with the ASA and with the anesthesiologist summit, what, what do we do to defend our profession? If we do keep making technology that makes it safer and safer and safer, uh, what's the end result of that? With doctors, you still need doctors. You know, you still need people who understand because things don't always go right and com no computer system doesn't have bugs, right? No matter what. And not all the data is digital. A lot of it is looking at the, the sniff test. You know, I look at this patient, they don't look good. So you'll still need doctors, but it does change the number probably even the ratio and even the CRNAs, something might come under them. You may not need a full nursing and CRNA training. You may just need yeah. airway support training at some point, right? Yeah. You just need to know how to handle an airway. All the rest of it's automatic. Um, sure. I think that can definitely happen, but there will be a person there because I yeah. am convinced completely that in, as far forward as I can see, we'll want a person to blame until cars don't get until Tesla gets blamed for the car wrecking itself, not the driver who's in it. I don't think cars will drive themselves for the foreseeable. We'll always we'll blame a person for at least 20 years. Yeah. So and and because of the social resistance to that, I think. Yeah, exactly. I think that's absolutely on point. Yeah, it's not a technical challenge, really. It's just right. a societal acceptance culture. You might be able to do it in other, your first place. You'll do a lot of this automated stuff is on Elon's first trip to Mars, right? Perfect. Yeah. They don't have any options. <laughs> It'll all be automated. Right. Um, he'll build his new society <laughs> with all cars that are only driven that's by right. robots. He'll get his own options. But, um, and there will probably be no accidents. That's right. It'll be better. And we'll realize it'll take something like that to tell us all, hey, look, it's way better. Just don't point, don't yep. blame people all the time. Like 
Um, yeah. yeah, that's a whole different podcast. It is. So I want to pivot a little bit before we wrap up and, and, uh, just talk about sort of the personal side. Cause I know as a physician, somebody like you, who you're a clinician, you're a business owner, you're writing code, you're doing software implementation, you're brainstorming new ideas and new applications for these things. You're a busy guy. And you're also married, you have a two-year-old son, and these things are also important to you. I remember seeing in your LinkedIn profile, you had husband and father right there in your byline next to, you know, entrepreneur and physician, which I thought was unusual and also commendable. So I was, I kind of appreciated that. And I'm, I'm interested to know, you know, how do you, how do you balance these things? And how do you and your wife as two busy doctors, presumably, like, how do you, how do you make life work together? Yeah, not very good at it. I will start out with saying I am no master. It takes constant attention. I mean, and I am wired naturally to, you know, I, if, you, if you study much about flow and the states of flow and how you get into the moments, like it's like video, Every everybody plays a video game, or I'd say anybody because this is me, but I guess most people can have something in their life that maybe it's knitting or whatever. And when you get into it, like the world stops, time stops, like you do it for an hour yeah. and a half and then you realize, oh, wait, the time went by. That's how I am with writing software, right? I mean, I when I practice anesthesia, I say this all the time, but when I practice anesthesia, I look forward to two things, lunch and 3 p.m., or it depends on where it is. It might be 5 p.m. <laughs> um, but whenever I'm writing code, like I'll skip lunch, and it'll be 7, and my wife have to come get me for supper, right? That I have a, I have, that's what can happen, and I know that can happen. So I have to yeah. pay special attention to not let that happen. Um, and it's not a natural thing because naturally you can never have written all the code, the software, you know, the program, there's always some bug. There's always something better, some way to, yeah. some efficient. so I have to pay special attention to it. Um, a lot of what helped me, this might not work for everybody, but, um, about a year and a half ago, I met this dude who was, um, he didn't really market himself as anything in particular. He's kind of a CEO coach. He's also sort of my that that's a way to say you have a psychiatrist that you don't call a psychiatrist um is ba- yeah. a psychologist you know basically what that's saying and the, you don't want to admit it but um but he's he's great because you know i talk to him you know every other week or so and just go through things make sure that i'm keeping things on track keep the two-year plan five-year plan life plan and then make sure, sure like you, a life coach you would say yeah it's basically it's, it's those things that now you know you say my you know, it's so cliche. Every comedian talks about, you know, I, I'm good. I got a therapist. Um, so we all want a therapist. I mean, we all want somebody. I mean, some, it doesn't come across as me being nice, but I mean, I think everybody could benefit from it. Some people like truly need it. I think without one, I'd be personally okay. Like me, Jack, but probably not yeah. my whole family. Right. right. Um, I think having something or someone that keeps you to make sure you're not forgetting about an important part of your life when you're really wrapped up. Cause you know, everybody who's been through med school or residency always knows you look at that line that you're trying to cross. And the moment you cross it, there's another line, right? And you never cross yeah. the last one until you're dead. So right. if you don't stop every, if you don't continue, if you don't think about that, you never stop. Like, and maybe that's just me or you know, people like me, but like you, you'll chase that line forever. So it yeah. takes a lot of stop. Now it also helps two-year-olds are cute and fun and call for their daddy that helps too <laughs> so <laughs> so when i'm working in my office and i hear him downstairs screaming daddy i can't like that gets me out of it and i go play but um yeah it is a challenge it is definitely a challenge and um yeah. you know we set some rules sundays are you know we go to sunday school sundays are our day unless something crazy 90 percent of the time sundays are our day and um that's sort of Yeah, that's good. And I'm mostly asking for myself because, you know, my (laughs) wife's in residency and it's a very demanding time and I'm starting this business and doing a lot of financial planning, wanting to serve my clients really well. And also the two of us trying to like, you know, keep the household running and we don't have kids yet, but that's probably on the horizon. And it's uh, wanting to have a healthy family life and a healthy marriage and eventually a healthy household of whoever, whoever it is. Uh, I know that takes a lot of focused effort because your job will take and take and take and take. And will not, my wife very astutely points out, like, it won't love you back. <laughs> right. And, and I, I say the, the other key is having the right spouse. And once you're married, it's too late to change. But, yeah. but I think if you, like, I happen, to, I've, even on LinkedIn, I think I say, you know, I have the most amazing angel wife in the world. So, I mean, she really is an angel wife. I mean, she is just very understanding. Her, um, her brother runs a big company in um, Silicon Valley in Austin. So, and then her other brother uh, is an army major. 
and um, lives on a farm in South Georgia, not not Georgia the country, Georgia the state. So um, <laughs> there's, I'm somewhere in the middle. Like I am like yeah. I'm like the nerdy computer doctor redneck because I hunt and fish and do all that stuff too. So like I'm I'm like I think that's what gets me forgiveness from her. So it's mostly yeah. her that we're doing well. Uh, but I I try, but it's yeah, I give yeah. her most of the that's credit. Good. That's good. Well, it takes two. And I'm going to say the same for me is that I definitely <laughs> married up and uh, my wife is incredibly strong, resilient and forgiving. And it's uh, that's why it's going as well. As it is. <laughs> that's so. right. Uh, cool. Well, Jack, I really appreciate your time. And I want to close with one last question. Um, you are a guy with a lot of spinning plates, a lot of pursuits, a lot of accomplishments. Uh, I'm curious, as you think back about the, uh, you know, all the things that you've done, what's a, an accomplishment of which you're particularly proud or has been particularly impactful or something that you're really excited about the potential that it has looking forward? I'll give you my most impactful one was my first year of surgery residency. I called my mom one day and I was in, this was when I was in Hawaii, right? So I had moved out there. I was like, Three weeks in, I was in a whole new place. I knew nobody. I was in a weird, so I'd call my parents a lot. So I call my mom one day and I tell her, Mom, today is the day that I really feel like if it weren't for me, a patient would have died. Like, this is the first day I think I saved somebody's life. And my mom said, What'd you do? Call in sick? And <laughs> I, <laughs> I was so oh, angry. Funny. I was so that's angry hilarious. at her because. She is not, she doesn't tell a lot of jokes, right? She's not a funny person. <laughs> that's what hurt even worse. Yeah, so there, there's, there's one of my most, that, that's one of my most memorable moments of my entire career. Your family will um, never let you forget that you're just the, the small town yeah, guy from wherever. That's exactly. good. It'll keep, whenever you're um, a big accomplished CEO, they're going to keep your feet on the ground for yeah, you. That's good. Yeah, it keeps you humble. So, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's one. I mean, if, if it's just something that sort of, um, I don't know. Getting into med school, I think, was a big one. It, you know, it it just I was a small town guy. Nobody, you know, my family was they were all smart and they do stuff, but there was nobody that was a physician in my family at all. I never considered it until uh, I couldn't get a job. And um, <laughs> and the Darla Moore wouldn't take me in the Air Force, said my eyes were too bad to fly a fighter jet. And I said, well, I ain't joining. So that's that's why I did medicine. But when I got in, I think that was, you know, now it's just look forward, you know, and and the most impactful thing I, I will say i guess i'll say it publicly but the uh, most impactful thing was probably that you know i married when i was young and like going through that divorce was the most uh, it it did so many good things long term for me it just everything putting everything in perspective keeps you humble and makes you realize nothing is forever without work um yeah. and that's within you know within two years is when i got the tattoo on my back just saying failure is not an option like whatever you start set your goal and don't stop before you reach it and be careful yeah. in where you set the goal if you set the goal too short you might fail because you'll reach that goal and stop so make sure if right. it's a company set your goal at profit don't set it at prototype whatever it is you're doing set your goal at the right spot and you know my my high school football coach um we had 19 people on our high school team and we won the state championship and this guy was the most impactful person in my whole life. I mean, wait, I mean, say that again. You had 19 people on the team. Yes. We and were, you won the state championship. Yes. So 11 on offense and 11 on defense. Yes, you so played you both. Yeah. Pretty much everybody's playing right. everywhere. Right. And so, okay. um, so this high school football coach, he did it all the time though. His name was coach Stanley Gruber at Dorchester Academy down in South Carolina. Mm. And for my whole life, I'd wondered what it was about him. You know, I always wondered what, what was it about him that got so much out of these people? Cause he could do it year after year. We were not a big school. We weren't that like, we weren't born with giant, you know, amazing genetics or anything. We were just, yeah. he could get a hundred percent out of you and you wanted to give him a hundred percent. And I always wondered what it was. And it wasn't until about two years ago that I came across what it was. And I was reading a book hmm. and it's called radical candor. And I can't remember who wrote it, the lady's name, but she had been you know, high positions at a lot of different, um, I guess Silicon Valley or just California companies. And um, she was talking about like, how do you give radical candor, which is how do you give direct meaningful feedback at the time you need to give it and not have to sugarcoat it. And her right. point was you have to have pre-established that you care. Right. And coach yeah. Gruber was mean as a snake. I mean, he would cuss you out. He would spit in your face, not like literally spit, but he's just screaming where it's spitting as he's screaming. And, uh, you know, he can't be a coach nowadays. He, he, you just can't do that. That's not allowed. But he, he taught me a lesson in that, which was 
if you establish you care, because like when I read that book, it brought tears to my eyes when I heard this. Because I was like, that is what he did. He didn't even know he did it, I doubt. But he, outside of football season, we were his kids. Like he would take us hunting. He would do anything for us. Football season comes, you better be given every bit of your entire body and effort to this team or yeah. he's going to destroy you. And when I when I read that, it it brought back, you know, my in me, I'm very – technical i put a value on everything i try to evaluate everything's cost benefit and a lot of times emotional or personal things are hard to do that too it's hard to say this mm -hmm. has x value whereas if i write this software it has this value it, 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 or if i go to the store twice it's whatever you know i don't that's too inefficient how do you do that for personal stuff and that that story that book and that process reminded me that establishing that you care before you need it you can't, you can't get, you can't give that kind of feedback if people don't think you care when you're giving it. You have to have already built that. So all those emotional right. things, all those personal things, all those caring moments that you can't put a value on, they do have a value because they have a value in the moment that you need to give radical candor. And that's what Coach Gruber did. And that, that whole process, I think, was probably the most, you know, in, in the most building of myself that I re fall back on constantly. That's one of the most valuable things that just, to my core, uh, help restructure my thinking on what matters. Yeah. So. Awesome. Well, I think that is a great note to close on, and I love that idea. So, Dr. Jack Neal, thank you very much for joining us on the Anesthesia Success Podcast. It's been a pleasure. All right, Justin. Thanks so much. Keep up the good work. Hey, Justin here. This may shock you to learn, but I am actually not a full-time podcaster. I also run a financial planning company called Quantify Planning where I work closely with anesthesia and pain docs to build and implement customized financial plans. If you're interested in working with a financial planner who knows many of the ins and outs of your profession, shoot me an email or head on over to quantifyplanning.com for more information. If you're a resident or fellow, I can also offer you a free student loan analysis if you're interested, but there might be a waiting list, so check out the link over there to see. If you're interested in learning more about the topics we discussed today, head over to anesthesiasuccess.com to join our community of residents and attendings and others to ask a question or get more free resources. If and only if you like this episode, please leave us a review and subscribe. Thank you very much for listening to the Anesthesia Success Podcast.